Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It is an incredible source to be able to continue in our journey to safer telling together, as Mrs. Shulman just mentioned. This is our last class for this uh, for this semester. So I'd like to close out the semester by focusing on our last week on Capital Dalit. We began chapter four. Well, I should say looped back to chapter four in last week's shear, and I'd like to you know conclude close out this limud with one more or actually two more incredible lessons from this capital as well. So just to reorient ourselves a bit, when we began capital Dalid in last week's shear lamasech beneginos mizmar David, we focused last week on the idea that there is a machlokis as to when exactly this capital was penned. What event did David HaMalek write this capital in response to? So we saw the opinion of the Radak and others who said that Capital Gimel chapter three, chapter four, excuse me, is a continuation of chapter three, where David HaMalek really begins the Mizmor David Bavarcho Mipneaf Shalom Beno, that these series of Kapitlach are a response to David HaMalek's flight in the, in the face of the rebellion from Avshalom, and Kapitel Dalit continues along that same theme. But then we saw the opinion of the Malbim and others who explained that in fact, this Kapitel was really a response to the drought and famine that was a divine punishment for Shoals wiping out of the city of Nov, Ir HaKohanim, the city of Kohanim, and also the resulting, <coughs> excuse me, loss of life for the Givonim. And we spoke about the lessons that come out from that particular, from this particular capital, the lesson of collective responsibility, the danger of passivity. But what I'd like to draw your attention to as we begin this week's shir is number four. Puts forward an incredible comment on this capital, which again, really irrespective of whether you understand this capital to be a response to King David's flight from Avshalom, or to the, to the collective responsibility for the sin of Shaul in wiping out the city of Nov, Rav Hirsch makes an amazing observation. But before we get to Rav Hirsch, understand this capital, chapter Dalid, in reality is very similar to so much of what we've seen through Sefer Tilim, right? I think as we were going through Sefer Tilim, I think we got up to chapter 86 or 87. And you, know, you find a, an incredibly prominent theme in Sefer Tilim. And the thing is that Sefer Tillam is that often the way the Kapitlach work is, David HaMelech will begin in a very low point with an incredible amount of sadness, an incredible amount of grief. And it really is not just that sometimes it's really grief for a life of what was, what could have been versus what is. David HaMelech often lamenting the difficulty of his circumstances, but often the way Sefer Tillam works is that David HaMelech begins on a low and ends on a high. Ends on a high. That high comes from belief in Akadish Baruch Hu, that belief, that high comes from belief in himself. That high comes from a recognition that as difficult and overwhelming as things may seem right now, he believes that they can and will turn around. Now, what's fascinating to note, and this capital, you'll go back and you'll take a look at the, at the text of this capital, is no different. David HaMelech goes ahead and begins in a state of existential angst, but then ends with a sense of hope and optimism. What's always unique about this is, you know, when you read the capital and you read David HaMelech's transition and emotional transformation, you would assume that over the course of these psukim, 
something dramatic has happened in David HaMelech's life. But in fact, remember, over the course of nine psukim, let's say this particular capital, nothing has materially changed. So what's changed? What's changed? So take a look at number four. The Rosham Shnafal Hirsch says something absolutely amazing. He writes, Mizmar David. This Psalm 2 shows the struggle, uh, shows the struggle upward out of a mood weighed down by distress to the heights of perfect, serene trust. And I find this statement of Rav Hirsch, and by the way, I want to point out, Rav Hirsch makes this same statement on a number of kapitlach, because the true for a number of kapitlach, that what happens over the course of Sefer Tillam, I think, if you know, being that this is our last class for the semester, we have not finished Sefer Tillam, we've been unsuccessful in that quest for many, many years. But I think one thing that we've been able to see is that what David HaMelech truly teaches us, and I guess I would say if there's one lesson you walk away with from Sefer Tehillim is that David tells us how you feel is a choice you make. How you feel is a choice. And this is incredibly important because if you think about this, if you ask people, how will you achieve a state of happiness? So if you ask most people, their happiness is dependent on something external to them. And the truth is this question often is dependent on where you catch people in their stage of life, right? So when someone's younger, they'll say, oh, I'll be happy when I get married. Um, you know, obviously you, you could back it up all the way, right? You can start with little children when I'll be happy if, or I'll be happy when. So if I'm younger, I'll be happy when I have children, I get married. Uh, after I'm married, I'll be happy when I have children. Once I have children, I'll be happy, you know, when my career is like this. And once you have a career, I'll be happy when I have graduated. You know, we, we constantly move the bar of happiness. And what's interesting is the common denominator, and it really starts when we're children, because you stop a child, right? Uh, you, you know, Shefala, when are you going to be happy? I'm happy when I, when, when I get this toy, when, when I have this thing. And from the time that we're young, we often erroneously hinge our happiness on something external to us. I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when this occurs. I'll be happy if this person does this. I'll be happy when my kids listen to me. I'll be happy when my children make the right decisions. I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when. And the danger of outsourcing your happiness is that you may or may not become happy. What David HaMelech teaches us is how you feel is your choice. No one else controls your happiness. No one else controls your sadness. No one else controls how you feel about yourself and about your life. Now you'll say, ah, that's crazy. That makes absolutely no sense. It's not true. Right? If my spouse does this, I'm going to feel a certain way. My kids do this, I'm going to feel a certain way. My employer does this, I'm going to feel a different way. So, of course, my happiness and my feelings in life are, are, are controlled by others. So, obviously, like this, they're not controlled by others. In my, the way I feel is informed by others. So obviously, again, if my spouse acts a certain way, that has an impact on me. My kids act, my employers act, everything that happens around me informs how I feel. But at the end of the day, how you actually feel in life, 
you, the way you feel is your choice, is your choice. You know, it's interesting because in, I think in the society we live in, we live in a very, I'll call it like victimization centric society that everything in life is about what's been done to you. And victimization is an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. Why? Because if you're a victim, then you're not responsible, right? If, if, I, if I'm a victim of something, if I'm a victim of circumstance, I'm a victim of whatever it may be, then that frees me from personal responsibility. You could see, you know, even if you look at what happens in Eretz Yisrael, you know, the world, the world doesn't understand that by constantly victimizing the Palestinian people, you're not helping them. You're not helping them. They are generational victims, right? They are, they are, re they've been refugees for decades. The rest of the world has moved on. The rest of the world has found their way, but they are constantly victimized. And by making them the victim, it precludes them from self-actualization. I don't mean to get political. This is not a political. This, this is just an incredible illustration of what it means to be a victim. So if at the end of the day, your happiness or your feeling of self-contentment or your self-worth is dependent on someone else. And now look, I can't be happy because look how this one treated me. Look what this one did to me. Look how this one impacted me. You're a victim. If you're a victim, then you have no control. So again, it's convenient to be a victim. And some people really like being a victim because it frees me from all responsibility. But David Amalekh says, at the end of the day, how you feel about yourself and how you feel about your life is your decision. You want to be happy in life? <laughs> it's going to sound very simplistic. Make a choice to be happy. Make a choice to be happy. And when you make a choice to be happy, you begin to see the world in a dramatically different way. Are there plenty of reasons to be unhappy? A thousand percent. Many, many reasons. Personal reasons, national reasons, global reasons, societal reasons. But what's your choice? What, 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 what do you want out of life? You see, the incredible takeaway message of Sefer Tehillim over and over again is in the course of one capital, David HaMelech starts out in the depths of despair, and this, this chapter is no different, the depths of despair, but yet then ends off with an incredible sense of simcha, an incredible happiness, an incredible sense of joy. So how does that happen? David, what's changed in your life? What's changed? What's changed? At the end of the day, your circumstances got better, right? Remember again, especially if you go with the approach that Kapitel Dalit is a response to David Amalek's flight from Avshalom. So tell me, David, what changed between Pasuk Aleph and Pasuk Tes? And the answer is nothing. Nothing externally, but everything internally. Happiness is a choice. Happiness is a choice. Because people make the erroneous mistake and we do this all the time and very mature and wise people make this mistake of thinking that happiness is dependent on something external to me if i have this when i accomplish this if i acquire this then i'll be happy well there's always something extra additional to accomplish there's always something additional to purchase right there's always many of us know that well right there's always something additional to go ahead and hinge my happiness on but that's the catastrophic mistake of life if you hinge how you feel on something external to you, then you give up the reins of your personalistic happiness. But if you understand that how you feel is a choice,
don't outsource your happiness. If you want to be happy in life, make a decision to be happy. Make a decision. You want to be optimistic in life, make a decision to be optimistic. You want to have a good worldview, make a decision because how you feel is absolutely up to you on any given day. There's good stuff, there's bad stuff. That's just the way that it is. The question just is how you choose to feel. And that's what Tafersh is saying over here. This Psalm 2 shows the struggle upward out of a mood weighed down by distress to the heights of perfect, serene trust. The, the greatness of David HaMelech is that every single day he faced overwhelming circumstances. And yet virtually every day, I'm sure it wasn't every day, but many days, David HaMelech makes the choice to be happy. He makes the choice to move himself out of distress. He makes the move to, he makes the move to, he, make, he decides to move himself from being weighed down by this distress into a sense of serenity, a sense of hope, a sense of happiness. And that was his choice. How you feel is your choice. Do you know how much conflict is created in marriages? Because a wife thinks, I don't mean to, I'm not picking on a wife here. I'm going to, I could switch it around as well. And I'm outnumbered over here, so I'm not picking on wives at all. But what I would tell you is, you know how many times, right, there's distress because a wife feels, well, my husband's not making me happy. <laughs> Who says your husband's supposed to make you happy? You want to be happy, be happy. That's, no, no one can make you happy. Other people could inform and help to shape your happiness. But if you want to be happy in life, that is a decision you have to make, or how many people, oh, my children, my children, my children, my children are doing, okay, you can't control your children. We all recognize, we, we, learn, we learn that lesson in different stages in life. Don't hinge your happiness on your children. You know, someone once said, I think the statement goes, you're only as happy as your least happy child. You can't do that because then you run the risk of consigning yourself to a life of unhappiness. Because at the end of the day, you may have unhappy children. You may have unhappy children for a variety of different reasons in life. And some of them very good and legitimate reasons. And a parent is always going to worry. A parent is always going to be in some level of existential distress when I know that things with my kids are not exactly right. But your choice to be happy in life has to be your choice and your choice alone. And that's what David Amalek teaches. David Amalek also had unhappy children. I'm putting unhappy children. saying that he had unhappy that's, that's putting it mildly. He had profoundly unhappy children. Actually, he actually had a number of dysfunctional children. And he had situations with our children that, Emir Hashem, none of us ever, Chas Shalom, will see the circumstances that he had. But he still makes a choice. He makes a choice ultimately again. And by the way, I want to point out, this is not our topic, but to understand in general, when we speak about happiness, that Judaism's view of happiness is not like, oh, I'm always so happy and elated and with a big smile on my face and everything is hunky-dory because for most of us, life is not like that. Happiness, at least from a Judaic perspective, is a sense of serenity that comes from a sense of meaning, of purpose, of hope. There are times in life that I can't have a smile on my face for a variety of reasons, but I can still experience an inner sense of happiness. But that's, that's not our topic. Happiness in Yiddishkeit is a, is a series unto itself because what it means really to be besimcha in life, to be, like Rabbi Nachman says, mitzvah gidol lelios besimcha tamid, to be in a perpetual state of simcha 
is a very complicated, both theological and emotional discussion. But leaving that aside, what David Amelach is teaching us is how you feel in life is your choice. You choose to be unhappy or unhappy. You choose to be optimistic or pessimistic. You choose to have good perspective or to have flawed perspective. You choose to see the glass half full or half empty. Other people could inform that choice, but at the end of the day, you make the choice about how you feel and how you look at the world. But then David Melech goes on. If you take a look at number five, number five, I'm just quoting to you actually from Pasake in the capital. So David Melech says, Rigzu so this is a, a really fascinating Pasek. So David Amal says, literally rigs. Now the English translation over here uses the word quake. Quake. Okay, we're going to see rigzu really means something a little bit different. We'll get to the definition in just a moment. But using the English here, quake and do not sin. Imru bilavavchem, say this in your heart. Al mishkavchem on your bed, vidomu sela, and be silent forever. Be silent forever. Okay, so what is David Amalek referring to over here? So, on the most basic level, remember, this is Pasake. So, if you want to understand what Pasake is referring to, the best way to do that is, in a very deep insight, look at Pasak Dalit. Look at the Pasak beforehand, right? What is David Amalek referring to right beforehand? So, if you go back to number one for just a moment and take a look in Pasak Dalit, so David Amalek says, Udu. You shall know that the Lord has set apart the pious man for himself. The Lord shall hear when I call out to him. So on the most basic level, David HaMelech is saying that if you do what is right in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Rebono Shal Olam will take care of you. He will take care of you. He'll listen to you. He'll heed your supplications. And then in Pasukei, David HaMelech says, this is something you have to constantly instill and reinstill in yourself. Which means quake with the knowledge that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will go ahead and take care of the righteous. And this should help you to avoid the temptation to sin. Constantly reinforce this in your heart. Reinforce what? That if you do the right thing, some way, somehow, the Ribbono Shal Olam will take care of you. When you lay down to bed, remind yourself again of this core and central belief that the Ribbono Shal Olam will take care of those who do the right thing. It may take a little bit of time, or it may take a lot of time. It may even take a couple of lifetimes. But at the end of the day, HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes care of those who pledge their allegiance to him. But the truth is, interestingly enough, at number six, the Gemara Masech is Grachas, has a little bit of a different understanding of this Pasuk. The Gemara says as follows, Amar Rabbi Levi Barcham Arab Shem Lakish. The Olam, Yar Giz Adam Yetzer Tov, Al Yetzer Hara. So this is actually quite interesting. The Gemara understands this to mean as follows. The Lushan of Rogez, Rigzu. So we trend the English translation in number, in number five had it as quake. But the truth is Rogez is anger, is anger. So the Gemara says, what does it mean? Rigzu va'al techetau. What, what, what does that mean? Literally, again, get angry and you will not sin. So the Gemara says, what does that mean? Li'olam yargis adam Which literally translated means, you have to get your good inclination angry at your evil inclination 
in order to avoid sinning. Shenemar rigzu vial techetau. So what 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 does this mean? First of all, in general, what's interesting about this is anger. You know, the Rambam and Hilchos Deos writes that when it comes to most midos, a person is supposed to have a little bit of everything, right? There's no such thing as a mida, as an attribute or a character trait that you're not supposed to possess. The shayla, the question just is, how much of any particular mida? For example, I'll just give you an example. The Gemara Masechah Sota says that gaiva, arrogance, is an incredibly destructive mida. Incredibly destructive uh, character trait. Yet the Gemara says that a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, is supposed to possess a shminis a very small amount of gaiva. And the truth is, it's not just a Talmud Chacham. Every person is supposed to possess a, a little bit, a tiny little bit of gaiva. Because if you don't, because remember, a little bit of gaiva translates itself into a sense of healthy self-worth. Right? Remember again, if, if I have no sense of self, if I have no self-awareness, if I have no little bit of ego, then I could become a doormat, then people could trample all over me. See, even arrogance, which is an incredibly destructive nida, you need to have a, a, a tiny, a tiny, a tiny little bit in order to create a hence, healthy sense of self. So every nida, the Rambam writes, a person is supposed to have a little bit of it, with one exception, kas, anger. Anger, says the Rambam, is such a destructive character trait that a person should obliterate any trace of anger from himself. Yet here the Gemara says, you're supposed to have some anger. Rigzu A person should cause his good inclination, his Yitzhar HaTov, to get angry at this Yitzhar, his evil inclination, in order to overcome the evil inclination. So what does this mean? So we're going to jump for a second to number seven. So the Tzlach, Rav Yecheska Landau, you can see his, uh, his, his biography over here, born in 1713 in Poland and dies in 1793. So the Tzlach says something absolutely amazing. He writes, so listen to this. So the, the Tzlach says something absolutely amazing. He explains, what does it mean that you should get your Yetzir HaTov angry at your Yetzir HaRa? See, he says something amazing. The Tzlach says, in life, you have to despise evil. You have to despise evil. You see, if you think about this for just a moment, you know, we live in a time, I think societally, there's an incredible trend for moral equivalency. Right, it's 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 very it's very passe, you know, and and out of and and out of style to say that something is wrong, right? Nothing's wrong. What do we have? We have alternatives. There are alternatives, right? This is an alternative. This is an alternative. This is an alternative. Everything's right. There are just different alternatives to right. Now the truth is that is true to a certain degree. There are very few things in life that are black and white. Right, there are, and there are like within the realm of that which is right, there are different shades, but then there are also things that are wrong. There are things that are just unequivocally wrong. There are things that are immoral, and they're not different shades, they're, they're, they're just wrong. Again, within the realm of that which is correct, there may be different shades of correct, there may be different alternatives to that which is correct. 
But then there's also a line between moral and immoral, right and wrong. And so the Tzlach says that's the Gemara is saying. You have to be able to call out wrong and tell it for what it is. You can't go ahead and allow the lines between moral and immoral, right and wrong, tummy and tar to be blurred. Now, again, what, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that you go ahead and you yell at people who are doing the wrong thing. And it doesn't mean that you go ahead and make a public displays against people who you may feel is wrong. There are ways to handle this, but the idea is in terms of your own inner moral compass. The Yemar says, Li'olam yargiz adam yetzer hatov al yetzer hara. You have to have clarity with your inner moral compass and you have to despise evil. Now, again, remember, we always say, hate the sin, not the sinner. This is incredibly important. You have to love every person. You have to love every person. And by the way, it's good to love greater humanity as well, because you know the moment you begin hating anyone is the moment you begin to sow the seeds of hating everyone. It's kind of like, it's kind of like honesty and integrity in business. If somebody says, oh, I, I'm always very honest in my business practices with Jews, but with non-Jews, I cut corners, word to the wise, don't do business with that person. Because the moment that a person starts cutting corners with anyone is the moment that they'll start cutting corners with everyone. It's a lot of the same thing with hate as well. The moment a person displays a sense of hatred towards anyone, that need seeps into everyone. But in terms of my inner moral compass, do I know what's right and do I know what's wrong, right? Do I have a clear division? This is okay, this is not okay, right? There are, there, are there areas of gray? Of course, absolutely, life is filled with gray. But when you see evil, are you able to identify it and say, you know what, that's evil, that's wrong. That's where I draw the line. Now, what does it mean drawing the line? I may never say a word about it. Right? I may never go out and make a public macha, a public rejection to it, but in my own inner moral compass, do I know what is right and do I know what is right? And you'd be surprised how often we make excuses for wrong and how often we make excuses for that which is objectively immoral and inappropriate. Can't make excuses. Again, I could love the sinner even if I hate the sin, but I have to know what's right and what's wrong. And in my own, even when the world around me lives in a state of moral equivalency, I have to know for my own inner moral compass, what is tame, what is tar, what is kasher, what is treif, what is permitted and what is prohibited. And that is so incredibly important because the moment you lose your inner moral compass is the moment you get lost in life. And then you end up making decisions that are just wrong decisions. And especially if a person is raising children, especially young children, if your moral compass is not clear, you end up with chinuch ambiguity. And there is nothing worse for children than mixed messages of morality. Incredibly important. So therefore, again, what the Gemara said, according to the Tzlach, rigzu ba'al David HaMelech is saying, you have to get your Yetzer HaTov angry at your Yetzer Hara. Aye, but anger is such a bad midah. It is a bad midah, except in this area. I have to know what is right and what is wrong. And I have to be crystal clear on what's the Yetzer Hatov and what's the Yetzer Hara. What is moral? What's immoral? What's good? What's bad? What's tame? What's tar? What's kasha? What's treif? And those lines have to be very 
clearly drawn. There's a lot of room in for, that, that, that I can navigate, but there are certain lines that I cannot cross. And I have to get my Yetzer Atov fired up enough, quote unquote, angry enough that it knows what's wrong. It knows what is the line of demarcation. What is the no pass line? What is the area that I'll go up to? But chas v'shalom, not any further. Now the Gemara goes on. And the Gemara says, it's quite a beautiful Gemara in number six. So the Gemara says, so if you could do that. So the first step is Get your Yetzer HaTov angry enough at your Yetzer Hara. That you know what is right and what is wrong. What line simply I will not pass in life. If that works in Mitzchon, if that works, in other words, to vanquish your Yitzhahara, then fantastic, Mutov, that's great. Vimav. What if it doesn't work? In other words, what if I just can't get myself fired up enough? And when I say fired up enough, by the way, I want to point out, no one else externally may even know what's happening inside of me. This is an internal process. This is the calibration of my own inner moral compass. How do you ensure that your inner compass is properly calibrated. So the first step, make sure that your Yetzir Hatov, your good inclination is strong enough, is angry enough, so to speak, to overcome your Yetzir Hara. Make sure you know for yourself what's right and what's wrong. If that doesn't work, the Gemara says, and if not, if you can't calibrate your moral compass on your own, to know what's right, what's wrong, to allow your Yetzir Hatov, your good inclination to overcome and to vanquish your Yetzir what should you do? Yasok Batola. You should learn. You should learn. Because how else in life do you know what to do if you don't learn? So if you can't calibrate your compass on your own, steep yourself in Torah. Learn Torah. Live Torah. And by doing so, you will be able to calibrate your moral compass. What happened? And that's in Rubelabachem. That's say it in your heart. So the Gemara is just dissecting the Pasik. So the first part of the Pasik, Rigzuva al self inspiration, self calibration. Allow your Yetzer Hatov to get angry at your Yetzer Hara. Calibrate your inner moral compass and decide and know what are the lines? What are the lines of demarcation between morality and immorality, good and bad, good and evil, kosher? And Shreif, Tamei and Tahar. If you can't do that on your own, Imru B'Labavchem. Learn. Steep yourself in Torah. Learn more. Learn more. Because the more you learn, the more you are empowered to go ahead and calibrate your inner moral compass. What happens if that doesn't work? So the Gemara says, Amishkavchem. Right? What should you do? Amishkavchem. On your bed. So the Gemara says, on your bed is a reference to Kriyashma. Sing Shmak is like Kriyashma Lamita, right? Kriyashma before you go to bed. If not, so if you can't, so if I if you can't cal- if I can't calibrate my my moral compass on my own, and even when I learn, I seem to still be shrouded in so much life ambiguity. Say Shma. What does it mean to say Shma? What it means to say Shma is to reach out to Hashem. You know, it's interesting that often. We reach out to Hashem. We know certain things we reach out to God for, right? I reach out to God for, for parnasa, for health, for things that I recognize that God controls. But it's interesting. Sometimes we forget to dive into HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the most important thing I need from God, and that is clarity. Clarity. 
I need your help in achieving life clarity because every single day I have to make a decisions. And how do I know that the decisions I'm making are correct? I think they're correct. They look correct. They feel correct. They feel like they're being guided by some higher calling or some moral compass. But how do I know that I'm calibrated in the right way? So David HaMalach says, make sure to reach out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So if you can't calibrate your moral compass on your own, and even once I steep myself in Torah, I still seem to be shrouded in so much ambiguity. I don't know the right decisions and the right directions to take in life. Al-Mishkavchem, say Shema. Say Shema means reach out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and ask him for clarity. What happens if that doesn't work? So now we're getting to the end of the line over here, right? I have been unable to calibrate my inner compass on my own. I haven't been able to do it on my own. Even once I've learned Torah, steeped myself in Torah, I still can't seem to get the clarity I need in life, okay? I've said Shema. I reached out to God, and I still can't seem to get the clarity that I need to get. What's the last stop? The Domusela. Now, Domusela literally means be silent forever. Says the Gemara, last line in number six, Ve'em love, yisker lo yom hamisa. Remember the day of death. Nothing forces a person to get their affairs in order more than the reality that life is a finite, non-renewable resource that comes to an end. And I don't know when it comes to an end. So I better get myself in order. I better get my life in order. I better calibrate my inner moral compass because I do not know when this journey comes to end. So let, let's analyze this a little bit outside. So what ends up happening is as follows. So what David HaMelech is really teaching us in this incredibly profound pasuk over here is the need to establish a moral compass. How else do you go, how else do I go through life without a moral compass? How do I make my decisions? How do I know how to raise my family? How to forget about my family? How do I know how to raise myself, right? Because we're often so focused on raising other people that we forget the most important person we raise is ourselves, right? And that I'm responsible until 120. How do I properly raise myself? I need a moral compass. So how do you establish a moral compass? How do you know that when you look at the world, you're looking at the world through the right lens. So David HaMelech says, there's a progression. Step one, rigzu Strengthen your yetzer hatov to the point that your, your good inclination, your desire to do good is stronger than your yetzer hara. That is how you calibrate. Get yourself in a positive way, angry at your yetzer hara. No, this is right, this is wrong. This is tameh, this is tahar. This is kosher, this is treif. This is good, this is not good. So the first step is, can you calibrate your own moral compass? Do you know, do you have enough knowledge? Do you have enough awareness to calibrate yourself in a personalistic fashion to put yourself on the right path going forward? Well, sometimes the answer to that is no. I can't do it on my own, okay? No problem. Next step, imru b'lebavchem, say it in your heart. The Gemara says that's a reference to learning Torah. Steep yourself in Torah. Because the more steeped in Torah I am, the better calibration my inner moral compass has. But what happens if still I find myself shrouded by ambiguity? Reach out to Hashem. 
and ask Hashem for clarity. By the way, it's interesting that if you notice in David Amel's progression, we're asking for asking Hashem for clarity is step number three. Right? You would have thought, should that not be step number one? To which Daniel teaches us no. Before you ask God for help, you have to add, make sure that you are doing whatever you can for yourself. You can always ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu for help, but are you putting in the right personalistic effort? Are you putting in the right level of ishtatbos? Are you trying to help yourself or are you just relying on God to do all the heavy lifting? So you have to take the first two steps on your own. But if you still find yourself shrouded by ambiguity, still my moral compass is not properly calibrated, reach out to Hashem, ask Hashem for help. And if none of that works, and you still find yourself shrouded in life ambiguity, still feeling like my inner moral compass is not properly calibrated, remind yourself that life comes to an end. Life comes to an end. And although I believe in Olam Haba, remember again, what is the world to come? What is the world to come? The world to come, Olam Haba, is where you reap the benefits of the life you lived here. So Olam Haba is only something to look forward to if I maximized my life here. If I did not maximize my life here, I am not looking forward to Olam Haba. So if at the end of the day, I can't self-calibrate and I steep myself in Torah, but I'm still shrouded in ambiguity and I reach out to God, I reach out to God and I say, God, give me clarity, but I still don't have clarity. So how do you get clarity in life? It's going to sound very, very, one simple way, I'm going to die. And I know that sounds like a little bit harsh. I'm going to die because for most of us, nothing gets us moving like a deadline, like a deadline. I know that I may have to clean up a room in my house. I know that I have to clean it up. And by the way, I've had to actually get the junk out of there for the last 16 years. But nothing gets me moving like knowing companies coming and someone's going to stay in that room. And as long as the world doesn't see my mess and I could close the door, I'm good. I'm good with it. But once someone else is going to see the mess, oh boy. Oh boy. It's incredible how 16 years, the same box has been sitting there unopened from the time I moved last time, right? But now that I know that someone's coming into that room, wow, we're going to move into high gear and everything's going to get going. You know what? I'm going to die. One day I'm going to die. And my whole life is going to be an open book before the Ribbon Sha'olam. And my entire Olam Haba is going to be based on how I maximized or did not maximize my life. I am going to die. And I hope with all of my heart that it's not until 120. But the truth is, I have no idea when life comes to an end. If it has shown comes to an end tomorrow, or if it comes to an end 100 years from now, I have no idea. But because I have no idea, I better get it into high gear. I better get it into high gear. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to leave this world with boxes and clutter and junk sitting all around the dining room of my life. I don't want that. I want that everything cleaned out. I want the garage cleaned out. I want the dining room cleaned out. I want everything in order so that when I meet my maker, I am confident and prepared to do so. I don't want to live, leave this world with the clutter of ambiguity sitting all around the different pockets of my existence. I want to unpack. I want to put everything away the way it's supposed to be. I want my personalistic house to be in order. And I want to be prepared to meet my maker. This is what David Amelach tells us. You need a properly calibrated 
moral compass. Because if you don't have a properly calibrated moral compass, you can't be successful in life. So either get it by self-calibration, right? Let fire up, anger up your Yetzir Hatov to overtake your Yetzirah. That doesn't work? Okay, steep yourself in a framework of spirituality. We call that learning Torah. That doesn't work? Ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu for help. That doesn't work? Well, stop making excuses because you're going to die. And when you die, and when you die, you have to give an accounting for all your life. And by the way, when you die, you know what the incredible, you know what the best part of life is? Really the best part, I find the best part of life are the excuses we can make. It's incredible. Excuses are like the greatest blessing. Why? Because there is an excuse for everything. And you know what the best part about excuses are? If you repeat them enough and, and earnestly enough and like with enough emotion, you actually begin to believe them. And it's incredible. So I could come up with a whole list of excuses why I'm not the person I know I should be, why I'm not living the life I should be, why I didn't do this, why I didn't. And it's incredible. Say it enough and you begin to believe it. You could believe your own excuses. But after 120, Emir Tzashem, the excuses all fall away because when you stand in the presence of the Ribama Shalom, there's only one thing and that's Emes. And if I didn't accomplish, there's only one reason I didn't accomplish and it's because of me. And if I didn't self-actualize, there's only one reason I didn't self-actualize, and that's because of me. So the excuses get you through 120. But afterwards, it does. So that's the last thing David Amalek says, is if you can't self-calibrate, and if Torah is not working for you, and if you reach out to Cheshbarach, you're so shot in ambiguity, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And that knowledge of death, that knowledge of death for most of us, is the ultimate motivator to get my personalistic house in order, to calibrate, to calibrate my internal moral compass, to be the person I need to be, and to live the life I need to live. This is the incredible aid to the incredible advice that David Amalek dispenses for us. But there's one last lesson, and with this I'll conclude. David Amalek chooses his words very carefully, right? And remember again, he uses this lashon of rigzu, rigzu. Now, rigzu, we know, is anger. Now, remember again, the Rambam writes, the Rambam writes that anger is a terrible mean and a person should have no anger. Now, the truth is, not everybody uses the Rambam. For example, Rapsadik Akoin, the Tzibka Satsadik, Rapsadik of Lublin writes that every Mido, there's no such thing as a bad, there's no such thing as a, as a bad Mido. There's only a Shaila of ultimately, again, how we use it. So, for example, is anger bad? So anger, anger, right, the chaos is bad, but the midah that fuels anger is not bad. Why, what, where, where does anger come from? Anger is passion. Anger is passion, right? When a person gets angry about something, they're passionate about that wrong thing. Now, anger, anger is a destructive manifestation of the midah of anger, or I should say of the, I'm sorry, Anger is a manifestation or a negative manifestation of passion, but passion itself is so powerful. And what David Amalekh is teaching us is something incredibly amazing. David Amalekh says, Rigzu vi And perhaps what David Amalekh is saying, and this will be our concluding lesson, is you know, if you ask people, like, what's the worst sin? What's the worst sin? a person could commit. Okay, so I'm sure you could, I'm sure if we polled the audience, 
you know, we could come up with a lot of wonderful juicy others, right? That are, are the worst, the worst. And even Chazal, person violates Shabbos, it's like I've all the Zara, immorality, all, all, all these different things. That one says, you know what the worst sin is? The worst sin is living a passionless life. The worst sin is living a dispassionate life. When you live life with no passion, when you live life and it's just blah, it's just blah. I do all the stuff I'm supposed to do, but there's no feeling. There's no emotion. There's no heart. There's no passion. So mechanistically, I'm doing everything I have to do. Behaviorally, I'm doing everything I have to do but there's no passion. There's no passion that's there. So David HaMelech says, that's the worst sin. Because when there's no passion, there's no excitement in my relationship with Nerevona Shalom. When it's a loveless marriage between myself and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when it's a passionless union between myself and my God, when there's no excitement, when there's no excitement, there's no growth. Where there's no growth, all there is is stagnation. And where there's stagnation, ultimately decline is sure to follow. So perhaps what David Amalek is teaching us is rigzu. Rigzu doesn't have to mean simply get angry. Rigzu means get passionate. Get passionate about your relationship with Hashem. Get passionate about your Yiddishkeit. Get passionate about your Torah, get passionate about yourself. Get passionate about what you want to do and what you want to be and how you want to live. Get passionate about you. Then you won't sin. Then you won't sin. Because the worst sin in life is when you lead a dispassionate life. The worst sin is mediocrity. The worst sin is flatlining, or to say it perhaps in a more sophisticated way, the worst sin is blah. Right? The worst sin is living a blah life. It's blah, 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 blah. It's the same thing. It's the same thing day in, day out. Do this, do that. That is the worst in the same way. Well, that, that's the worst in Rigzuva Old And by the way, this is the, if you think about this, this is the key to any life relationship. If you want to have a successful relationship, you want to have a successful marriage, the key, the key, See, everyone thinks the key is Kiddusha. It's Kiddusha that makes a successful marriage. Okay, I don't know. I haven't been married that long. I don't think that's true. I think Kiddusha, I think Kiddusha is an important degree. And I'm not, and I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a relationship guru. You can ask my wife. She'll, she will verify that. I, I, but I think, I think a simple man is the key to a successful marriage is passion. Is passion. You see, when you think about passion, you have to think about like physicality. That, 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 that's part of, but that's, that's what I mean. I mean being passionate about someone is, I, I, I'm, I'm passionate about you. You're important to me. I'm crazy about you. I care about you. I love you and I'm effusive in that and I'm excited. And you know that I'm excited about you and you know that I care about you and you know that, I, that, that you're important to me. What's true in marriage, and by the way, it's the same thing in a friendship. What makes a meaningful friendship is passion. You see, we use the word friend very interchangeably with acquaintance. What's the difference between acquaintance and a friend? 
right? An acquaintance is someone, when you see them, you'll say, hi, how are you? You'll, you'll exchange some pleasantries. A friend is someone who you deeply care about, who you're passionate about. I care about this relationship. I wanna do for you. I wanna be there for you. The hallmark of a successful marriage is passion and the hallmark of a successful relationship with Kaddish Baruch Hu is rigzu, David HaMelech says. Rigzu, get excited, get passionate. Because if there's passion there, you won't commit the worst sin. And the worst sin is not Chil Shabbos, and the worst sin is not, the, those are all bad things, right? The worst sin is living a dispassionate Judaic life. The worst sin is being blah about your Yiddishkeit, being blah about the Ribbon Shel Olam, because if you're blah, it is only a matter of time until ultimately the descent and disintegration of the relationship occurs. Be passionate about your Yiddishkeit. Be passionate about your relationship with Torah. Be passionate about your relationship with Ribbon Shalom. So if we bring this all together, it turns out that David HaMelech gives us, provides us with three beautiful lessons. Lesson number one is, your, it is how you feel is your choice. You choose how you feel. You want to be happy? Make a choice to be happy. And if you're sad, understand you've made a choice to be sad. Other people can inform and impact how you feel. But ultimately, again, only you choose how you feel. Lesson number two, we must each create a refined internal moral compass. We have to know the difference between right and wrong, between Tame and Tahar, between Kasher and Shreif. We must always know where to draw that line. We could be accepting, we could be loving, but for our own internal moral compass, I have to know what is right and what is wrong. There aren't just different, not everything is another shade of right. There's a line and I have to know how to draw that line. So how do you do it? David HaMelech says, the first step is see if you can do it yourself. Can you go ahead and cause your Yetzir HaTov to get angry at your Yetzir HaRa? If that doesn't work, Torah. If that doesn't work, reach out to Hashem for clarity. And if none of that works, remind yourself, life comes to an end. So stop making excuses and start engaging in dynamic activity. Start explaining, stop explaining why you don't have an inner moral compass and start trying to cultivate and refine it. And finally, lesson number three, reminds us the worst sin in life is not any particular Avera. The worst sin in life is leading a blah, dispassionate, unexciting, unmoving relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's the worst sin. Therefore, Rigzu, get yourself excited. Get yourself passionate. Motivate yourself to strive for something more. And then you will refrain from committing the worst sin, the sin of dispassion, the sin of blah. These are the lessons of David HaMelech, the lessons hopefully that will help us lead more successful and more meaningful and more impactful lives. The lessons that were true, you know, when David HaMelech wrote them and the lessons, because the human condition doesn't change, you know, everything else changes, but people don't change. People are always the same. And the struggles are always the same. And the human condition is always the same. And David HaMelech gives us the keys, gives us the solutions, gives us the aids, gives us the strategies to become the best version of ourselves. Maybe Zohar Hashem to internalize them. It has been an incredible privilege to with all of you over the course of this semester. I wish everyone a restful, restful and restorative summer. And as Mr. Shulman mentioned, how they will be Zohar Hashem 
to celebrate the three weeks and Tisha together and rebuild Yerushalayim with our beautiful base of here on the Amen. Amen. Amen.